Welcome to First Pitches, where famous founders break down the very first version of their pitch so you can master yours. I'm Lolita Taub, co-founder and general partner at the Community Fund. And I'm Eric Bond, co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund. Lolita, ready for some real talk with these founders? Sure, let's do it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 21,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash first pitches. Berkland is the recognized leader in outsourced CFO, tax, and accounting services for startups at the emerging and growth stages. As a sponsor of First Pitches, Berkland would like to offer listeners a free finance consultation. Berkland also offers important tools on its website, a financial controls matrix, Finance 101 for Startups, Contingency Toolkits, Tax and Marketing Calculators, and other critical resources for scaling a company. Visit berklandassociates.com slash hustle. Hey there, listeners. Hung Pham here, executive producer of First Pitches. On this episode, Eric, Lolita, and I debrief our interview with last week's special guest founder and share our thoughts, insights, and reactions. If you haven't heard last week's interview yet, I highly recommend you do so. And now, on to the show. Hey, Lolita. Hey, Hung. I had such a great time with you guys having that conversation with Arlen Hamilton just now, founder of Backstage Capital. What a journey she's been on to build her fund, her brand, all the projects. Um, Curious to get your thoughts, Lolita, to start with you on some big takeaways or insights that you got from that conversation. Yeah, you know, I was so happy that she opened up and shared about her mom and and her personal uh, struggles and and concerns about her mom's health care, for example. Yeah. That was really touching to me because that has literally been one of my biggest issues in my family. Um, my parents came here uh, illegally, then became residents. Um, but have always been really concerned about the the system and and being tagged and maybe kicked out of the country. And so that was part of like the should we be in the system? Should we get healthcare? And then there's the second part where it's like healthcare is unaffordable. And so for the most part in my life, I never have health healthcare. And so Arlen bringing that up and sharing um, that reality of really worrying about your parent was it, it really hit home. And it brought up this, this, you know, just feeling inside of just like, yeah, sometimes we, we take for granted things like healthcare. Um, and it's such a big deal. And it's such a privilege to be able to have healthcare. And I personally, that was one moment where I just felt extra connected with her. Because yeah. if you live through it, you know, it's, it's such a concern. You want the people you love to have a healthcare support. I mean, you guys must have had conversations about this in the past, right? When you were working together, was this was this a recurring theme in terms of uh, concerns that you had in your upbringing? 
No, actually, it's not. We when wow. whenever my interactions with Arlen have always been about like making things happen and the results and helping founders and building funds and um, writing checks. And so personally, my interactions haven't been a lot about, hey, here's all the things that have gone mm. down in our in our lives. It's been more of how do we move the needle? How do we get, you know, to her point, what she was talking about, how do we get more capital in the hands of underestimated founders? How do we, how do we keep working on it? And, 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 and what are the different vehicles or ways that we can support the ecosystem? And, and it was a lot about that and, and building in the business case and talking about it because unfortunately in the industry, when you do talk about underestimated people, when you do talk about, um, you know, a black gay woman um, running a fund or even a Latina woman in VC, a lot of the conversations turn into that exactly what she said. That's cute. And, mm. and so we've really focused on the meat of it, not the, oh, this is nice and this is like a charity thing because it's not. It's about making money. It's about taking money uh, that's being left on the table and leading us into the future. And that's what we've spent a lot of time talking about. Not so much on the, on the personal side, surprisingly. Wow. So you, it sounds you like it's surprising to you. Yeah. It is. Because you yeah. guys have been buddies for years. And I mean, like, it was a great question that you asked around, like, you know, what kept you up at night in the early days. Uh, and, and this healthcare thing was, was really fascinating, but um, it, it's a pretty vulnerable revelation, right? Um, and yeah. uh, uh, I think actually should be discussed more. And one of the things that I really appreciate about you and Arlen is that you bring up uncomfortable topics all the time. So it's really cool to see that uh, this is actually something new for you as well today. What what did you what did you take away? Like, what was your favorite story bit? I mean, all of that is amazing for Marlon, but was there something that struck your struck yeah. your heart in any way, sense, or form, or you were just like, "Wow, okay, I didn't know that. That's cool." You know, um, there's so many interesting things about this, but the general kind of zeitgeist feeling is more about like how much tenacity Arlen has. So. She was talking about how it was from 2011 when she really decided that she wanted to make a go of building her career in tech and as an investor. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't really until 2015 when she got her first commit um, from uh, Susan Kimberlin, I believe was her name, from yeah, uh, yeah, Salesforce. Yep. And uh, that's four years of fundraising, of trying, of building skills, of uh, in the beginning days, it didn't seem like she had too many mentors and what I could see in the research in today's conversation too. And I think four years is enough for most reasonable people to say like, hey, maybe it's not in the cards for me to put together this fund. I only have $12 in my wallet, as she said at one point when she was in that 500 stars VC program. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really think that, you know, her level of intestinal fortitude capacity yeah. <laughs> is undeniably I don't know how to say like great or whatever, but like, it's, it's like, it's something. And um, yeah, she just never gave up and, and look where she's come. She's so. never going to give up. Never, ever. <laughs> and that's what's so great about Arlen. You can count on their consistency of her delivery on her vision. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's so much to be said about what you just said in terms of her tenacity, her persistence and her stamina, right? Because you have to withstand all of these naysayers. Uh, I know we didn't get to go through all the tweets, but there have been a lot of naysayers yeah. that have said, okay, wait, you made the 
the cover of Fast Company, but then what? Or what are the results of? And honestly, I, I think, you know, at one point we, we, did, we did talk about uh, in another conversation about comparing your chapter one to somebody's chapter 10. And, and I think that the industry uh, really looks at a particular profile and compares, relatively speaking. And when you look at where Arlen started and where she's gotten, that's where you, you look at the trajectory there and you compare it to others who may have just been like, I'm going to write, you know, I'm going to start a fund with my friends. And we just did this, like a lunch conversation. And over lunch, everyone agreed to give us 5 million each. And now I have $25 million, you know, um, pilot fund. Mm -hmm. And and you hear that and, and you might think, well, relative to the numbers, where has Arlen gotten herself? And you might, if you if you just look at the numbers, you might be like, ah, it's not that much. But when you think about and compare the the starting point, right, yeah. to the starting point, it's just you can't you can't do anything but just be amazed and and say, hey, how can I support her? Um, because she's doing something really great and it's going to make a lot of money. I think it ties closely as well your comments about um, privilege. And she started discussing from one of your questions, like, you know, actually that was driven from one of the tweets that you found, Lolita, about, you know, privilege and um, and storytelling, actually. It was primarily storytelling. And she actually touched on privilege a little bit, which is like, I, I loved how she described that everyone has a great story to tell. And mm -hmm. there's actually a kind of a sensitive topic around those who have privilege, who are able to maybe show like exceptional milestones in their careers and being maybe overly apologetic about it or something. But I thought she was really gracious. And this is actually uh, maybe too self-serving too, because I'm a very privileged person as well, of just like saying like, you know, wherever you come from, there's a really remarkable story that you have to share, right? And that should just be embedded within your, your, your storytelling and you just got to own that. Um, and that and, I, and I, I do agree. You do have a really great story to tell, Eric. Well. When you choose and, and how and where. And, you know, to her point, I really loved on, on that on that on that notion of everybody has a story and how much do you tell and how much do you not? I, yeah. I think there's so much truth to that. So if you think about your own story, mm. Eric, which you've shared with me, um, you think about what you want to be public and what you want to be private and regardless of how much of it you share or not, it's your story. Yeah. Yeah. Hung, you did such an exceptional job putting together the show notes, uh, Hung, our awesome producer of first pitches. And, you know, so you put in tons of research, found all these great quotes and insights, saw all the videos and read all the articles. Was there something that was surprising for you uh, coming out of today's interview with, with Arlen? Um, I think it just reinforces a lot of what I felt about Arlen. Um, I was a huge fan prior to working on this project um, doing the research, I just fell in love with her story. Uh, and and, and what we mentioned this before. She's such a great storyteller, super funny. Just reading through her blog entries from years ago was super funny. Um, and yeah, just, just listening to the great interview today just reinforces a lot of what I felt. Um, quick, quick question though. So we, we talked about, or you mentioned, Eric, how she spent four years working on her idea before getting her first check. And I'm curious because I don't know if I could go four years of, of you know, trying to build something and, and <laughs> not seeing some, some sense of success. But I, I guess as investors, how important is it when you're talking to entrepreneurs that 
they're building something they really believe in because uh, it's it's tough. And I think you made an analogy some time ago that founding a company is like eating glass. And um, how how much of that plays into when you're looking at founders and, and what they're building and whether you invest in them or not? Yeah, sure. I'd love to hear Lily's uh, thoughts on this as well. So I didn't take, uh, that's not my quote. I think it's like Peter Thiel's quote or Reed Hoffman's okay. about the eating glass. So <laughs> I'm not going to take credit for their uh, their insight here. But, you know, um, there was, there's an analog, I think, to her journey that I felt in my own too. So I spent three and a half years bootstrapping my first education company before I went full-time on it. I did see consistent progress over time. It was just a little bit slow, but um, for me, when I was working on that project, it almost felt like an existential universalist kind of thing of just like, man, this is a problem that I just so deeply care about and I just want to see it in the world. And this is like why I'm placed on this earth to actually like work on this project at this moment of time. And it, it almost like I'm a pretty lazy person, I think by nature, like my, my primary thing that I like to do is like watch like Star Trek Next Generation with my wife eating tea and cookies every night. And I like, that's my heaven really. But, you know, when you find those kinds of projects and missions that you can latch yourself onto, um, I guess it does have that kind of sustaining power. Uh, I felt it to some degree, but I think actually Arlen took it like 10x where I was because a privilege, frankly. And I do think it's actually really important to recognize this. It's like, there was a lot of tailwinds I had into my very first company. For example, I did not have school debt. I could still find access to healthcare uh, through my parents and other, and else, other things like this too. Like a, a lot of mm-hmm. things that are sort of just like baseline things that uh, allowed, like that greased the wheels pretty substantially. Uh, but the purpose part of it, I think was, is, is something that I try to find also in the founders as well. It's just like, do they have that kind of almost like missionary driven kind of mindset of, of I want to bring this thing to the world no matter what, and I'll find a way to bring it out to the world. Um, Lolita, what, what's your response to that? Yeah, so to, I, I think um, just to recap the question, I think what you're asking, Hung, is what would you think of someone who is a founder who has been working on something for four years and just starts to look and see traction? Uh, if, you know, if I take myself back to my first, uh, my first venture capital fund that I worked at, I would think I'm going to pass. And my first fund was really great folks, but very traditional, more, more of a traditional approach, although they were mavericks in their own ecosystem. So Hmm. interesting to know. But when I came to Backstage and I started working more hand-in-hand with underestimated founders, it wasn't, it wasn't weird for people to take longer to get to traction for a lot of the reasons Eric is talking about. College debt, family responsibilities, and not just family responsibilities as in their spouse or their child, but their parents and their parents' parents and the whole family that's now depending on this one individual. Or it could be other things like discrimination or inability to access capital or lack of social capital, et cetera. And what I noticed um, was that what, what really is the magic sauce in, in being able to identify, in my, in my perspective, Uh, identifying these amazing underestimated founders is thinking about their grit, thinking about where they're, where where they've started and how far they've gone and how lean, how, how much they've leaned into it. Right. And not given up. And some of these stories, when you hear of, of where they started 
um, regardless of how much education they had or not, or so much, you know, it's across the spectrum. But sometimes it just takes a little bit longer when you're a person of color, because, you know, I can tell you personally, when I went to to do my my MBA at one of the, the best global MBA programs in Madrid, and I had a peer who told me, Lolita, you will never make it in Silicon Valley and you will not be a VC, but you know what you can do really well? You can, you can be a great soccer mom. And, you know, Josh would love that, I'm sure. And it's these kinds of things that make it so that even if you're really great, it just takes you longer because there's this perception. You don't, you don't start at like, let's work on a startup and focus on the business. You start with re- preconceived notions. So for me, and, and, and I know I'm giving you a long-winded answer, but for me, I, I don't look at founders anymore in terms of like, when did you start your business and how much have you gotten? I start with where did you start? And how far have you gotten? And what's your vision? And I do really care about the vision. I care that it's really big and they they want to change something and that they're very passionate about it and that there's something that's going to keep them going. And that's what I see in a lot of underestimated founders, which makes me want to invest in them even more so than someone that might have had all the privilege in the world and they can decide to turn on and turn off a switch whenever they can and want to. I want to challenge you on the tough question on this point. So, you know, um, as investors, I have a real struggle when it comes to uh, explaining why you can support underestimated founders. So on the one hand, I also make the same argument, which is like on a long enough period of time, because venture capital is a long-term asset, you can find unicorn quality outcomes with underestimated founders for sure. But I also do recognize the same point that you're making too, Lolita, which is that we all have different starting points. If you're coming out of school with like privilege, no debt out of Stanford University, computer science degree, like it's going to be a different kind of starting point than if you have some of those qualities or none of those qualities, right? The outcome long-term could still be the same. But for LPs, this is actually a really difficult group to sort of get them to embrace, especially the more institutional in my experience of like, you know, they want to see markups on a very consistent basis. They want to see people raising capital really fast uh, every six months to a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the population that tends to do that the best are frankly white and Asian men, you know, who, who have the pedigrees and so forth. So I, on the one, there's sort of a, a balance here that um, I'm always interested in getting people's thoughts on, especially those who are active investors like yourself, Lolita, definitely Arlen. This should have been a question that I would love to follow up with her about is, um, uh, what are the institutions that you can go to that really understand this and support it? Because it seems like the traditional institutions have a lot of systemic issues yep. where they use this kind of mathematics as a reason not to do it. Of just like, oh, it's going to take too long to uh, support these founders to get to their exit outcomes, even if it's great. Yeah. I mean, there's so many layers of issues and in, in, in like, I, I feel like I can take it in so many directions. But first, like the, the LP thing institutional investors that are traditional and are status quo, they're just going to be tough, right? Sure. Uh, You are starting to see these conversations where LPs are being called out and saying, hey, like, what are you doing and what do you stand for? Um, And so I I definitely think that there's a challenge there. 
Uh, I, I primarily have lived in and experienced the micro VC, the individ, wealthy individuals who are the LPs to funds. And I honestly think that there that is where we can see more change Agreed. faster because yep. you have people who are honestly more progressive and understand that you, you can't like, especially in a, in a business of risk, you've got to take risk in something that's not going to stay the same as it has been for the last 40 years. And VC is very quickly evolving, right? I mean, just last year, you wouldn't have thought that you would have a rolling fund that you can announce on Twitter and raise a bunch of money, right? So there are things that are changing and our institutional uh, entities, LPs going to go with it? Maybe, maybe not. I think the smart ones will. I think the smart ones will figure out how to get in there. I think the smart ones will start investing in emerging fund managers, like for example, 645 Ventures with Namdi and Aaron. Aaron, yeah. Uh, yeah, and and or Kirsten, right? Kirsten has, with Forerunner, she has definitely proven herself, but both of them, right? Emerging fund managers that are not from the homogeneous status quo, there, there's institutional investment going into them. So I think that there are definitely leading LP institutions that are, have a bit op, more open mind. And, and what I'm saying when, when I say that there may be longer time horizons, um, it doesn't, like, I believe, especially if you're investing in early stage, that then it's our job, our job. So maybe the, these founders did not have the, the social capital, the know-how, the connections, whatever, that's our job to fill. I, I don't think that, that all we do is write a check and say, hey, in five to seven years, build a unicorn. I think that is our job and our responsibility um, to go and do that for the companies we know are going to be the future. Not because we're being nice, but because we want to make a shitload of money. Yeah. You know, uh, I love what you said. A founder recently told me my job, what my job is. And she said to me, uh, your job is to allow me to use your privilege to accomplish my goals. And I thought that was a wonderful lens to, I think, our role as, as VCs. Um, it's yeah. still a relatively nascent view, though. I think that like, uh, even among like emerging managers have in terms of their social contract with founders and being more service-oriented, um, there's a lot to be said there. Um, was there a question that you wanted to ask Arlen, but we didn't have time for because time flies on this show. I'm going to direct that to Hong and then Lolita. The interviews I enjoy the most are the ones where when I listen and then I hear a little nugget and I think, oh, shoot, I did that too. Mm. Um, Because those are the ones that I can relate to. And I think she was talking about how, you know, when she first started the first four years and she was she didn't really have a pitch deck. So a lot of it was in emails and she would write like essays. And I remember doing that to a lot of entrepreneurs when I started off Totally. and I would get no responses. And so that brought me back. Um, and she did say something funny. It was like, how do you take the Ilya and turn it into a tweet? And that's probably a good, a good analogy of how like yeah. you should communicate these days, just get very succinct and, and to the point. I actually love that that observation, Hung, because it also did click with in my brain because I was thinking, you know, oftentimes I'll have founders and even investors say, how are you building your brand so quickly on Twitter? And like, what are you doing? Like, what is it about you? And I'm like, I don't really know, but 
I just write as, as concisely as possible things that can be helpful to others. And Twitter has really helped me hone in on what is important to say in one tweet. I think threads are a lot easier to do, but when you can have this powerful one tweet, it's amazing. And Arlen is definitely a master of those, right? I mean, just the, the tweet that we called out, she had had 1.1 thousand likes in. And it's, it's, of course, it's her story and her brand, but it's not every tweet that gets that. And there's so much to be said about the art of how do you take all this world of information and things you can talk about and turn it into something that's packaged in just, you know, to, what is it, 240 characters? Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. Well, actually, Lolita, uh, don't sell yourself short on this. I think that uh, your your Twitter advocacy and brand building has been exceptional to watch uh, in the last few years. Um, it, it seems to be a really weird phase that we're entering in terms of the emerging managers like yourself and me, where uh, this is like a critical skill set to learn. I mean, like hundred, hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of deals. Yeah, but like, uh, like there's a whole bunch of questions I have for Arlen about this, but for you actually, like, is this the primary channel by which you're, you're investing in your brand? Like, do you, are there other channels that you care about? Is it like long form blog posts too that, uh, wh- where do you spend your time when it comes to uh, building brands from scratch? Cause there's a lot of listeners here who, a lot, lot of listeners, I bet who want to follow, I guess, in your footsteps too, and like build an audience. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, and you know what, I've actually started getting requests for, Hey, can you do a one-on-one consult on brand building? Wow. And I'm like, what? I want to talk about like <laughs> making money for you guys and fundraising. And people are like, no, but tell me about your brand building. Um, and, and so it's been more of a organic, what works in terms of being a value add. I have always centered it around how can I add value in the easiest way possible? Uh, and I also started like Hong and Arlen writing lots of big things and everyone gets lost in them. So I've thought, how can I share information in a way that's very accessible? Because the other thing is, it's like one of my pet peeves growing up, especially because I'm dyslexic and especially because I grew up with parents who didn't, who were illiterate and didn't even finish elementary school. Mm-hmm. I wanted things to be taught simply that anyone can understand. And so much of our industry is not like that. They, t- you know, everybody talks about the lingo and doesn't explain the terms and then there's this acronym and then there's that acronym and, and everyone's just like, well, if you don't know, then you're stupid. And what I've done in, in what I think has been um, the market and, and the audience and my followers and have been really receptive to is, can you give us succinct information that we can use that I actually understand that if I talk to my wife about, she could understand too. And I've focused on that. I actually started on Medium and, mm. I, and I've written, I, I think the last time I published the, the Latinx Founders Resource Guide, uh, I noticed that I was at 171 posts that I've posted on Medium. Wow. And I've wow. gotten better. I think you get better with practice, but I do do some longer form in Medium. Um, but a lot of the day-to-day is in Twitter because you can quickly ask a question and get an answer or tag people and it's more interactive. And now this is the way I'm making friends, honestly. Eric, didn't, didn't we become friends on Twitter? For sure we did. 
that's how I make friends now. <laughs> so, and, and to, but to answer your question, Twitter is my main one. And I have started to see, I don't know, is the VC world also moving into LinkedIn? Because I see things reposted and reshared there all the time. And now yeah. I just reshare, but I'm just focused on like, look, I don't have the time to be an expert in everything. But Twitter, I love to do succinct things. And then I refer, reference them back. And I'm like, oh, you have the same question I answered. Let me look at that tweet. Here's a tweet for you. Yeah, I love what that. About, what about you, Eric? I mean, you've been doing a lot of activity too in terms of creating your own brand in your own way. So uh, Twitter is a big one too. And I do, uh, this is hopefully not too much of a secret, manage most of our social media <laughs> for Hustle Fund now too. And, you know, there's a goal that I, that Elizabeth, my co-founder, and she and my other co-founder set when we started the fund, which was when we work with founders, we don't want to just have a great professional relationship with them, but we want to love them personally too, right? So that we can like spend the rest of our careers doing stuff together yeah. and surrounding yourself with people that give you joy, like Lolita and Hong all day long. is just like a wonderful way to live. And so when we try to apply that to our own communication, we try to do a few things that I think are authentic to us. One is attempt mm -hmm. humor, right? Uh, because we like to be, uh, uh, try to be funny. I like dad jokes and it's corny and, and it's fun. The second thing though, is we like to make fun of ourselves. And as part of that is making fun of the VC industry too, because, you know, when we were all younger founders, younger operators building our careers in Silicon Valley, Lolita, you sort of touched on like this kind of era of exclusivity that uh, mm -hmm. Silicon Valley is anchored against, right? Which is, you know, oh, it's, you know, there's only limited slots for you to get into a, a certain accelerator program, or there's only limited deals that we do per year as GPs into you. And it's so stodgy and opaque and old school that uh, it, it just gives you tons and tons of material to make fun of, <laughs> right? Because this is an industry that's still predominantly occupied by insecure men, which is rapidly changing, but it's still mostly that is, insecure. That is, that is a tweetable for sure. <laughs> I will retweet it. <laughs> It's going to be the transcript, so just copy and paste. <laughs> so, I mean, like for us, we want to expose our personality as authentically as possible yeah. in anything we produce. And it sort of naturally self-selects for reciprocating founders who are also more on the vulnerable end, like those who are open to vulnerability, open to, um, you know, sharing in our sense of humor mm -hmm. and mostly filters away from the jerks too. Uh, yeah. So it's like a, it's, it's, that's kind of our very simple strategy there. And it, it, it makes it very easy to come to work because I'm not like putting on a suit and tie to impress a founder, right? It's just me and my very dark garage right now. <laughs> that's cool. No, but I, I do appreciate that. And that's something that attracted me to you and Elizabeth, Eric, is just you guys are so real. You're real humans. And I think beyond just adding value, it is really important to connect with people as people because I was telling Josh, um, my husband, I, I was telling him, you know, we were actually talking about investing in a founder. And I said, I just want to ask you a question. And I think Eric, you might've inspired this one. I said, which, do you want to marry him? Do you want to write him love notes and love notes <laughs> for, for me are, are you going to sit down and think about the strategy? Are we going to use our social capital to get them connections? Are we excited about that? Or are we just doing it because of other, uh, other reasons? We need to be that invested in, in founders. Um, and I think I got that from you. And, and knowing that, you know, I know you as a human and hung, 
Like I want to work with people I know and that never stops. My background is sales, right? Mm. And I was always taught that people do business with people they like. And I don't think it is any different in VC in the startup world. And honestly, I want to do business with people who are real, who care, who are human and also want to make money. And I don't have to be everybody's cup of tea. Um, but I love, I love what you guys are all about. Um, on that note, actually, so I looked at the side of my other screen because Arlen just said, I wrote her a thank you for, for coming on. Oh, fabulous. And, and she, she texted me, uh, saying thank you. Cause I complimented her. She said, thank you. I think you all are going to have a great series. So FYI, I, <laughs> I, she, she is Thumbs cheering up. us on. So yeah. let's not let her down. Yes. I, <laughs> I think that is a great way to conclude today's episode, recapping our conversation with Arlen Hamilton. Uh, very lucky to have this opportunity. Lots and lots of great insights. I hope that the listeners are also able to check out uh, the show from earlier. And of course, check out Backstage Capital backstage crowd and her book it's about damn time lolita hung thanks we'll talk to you soon right thank, thank you. you thank you for listening to first pitches for show notes and more visit our website firstpitches.com where you can subscribe to the show on apple podcast stitcher spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode First Pitches is produced and edited by Hong Pham. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to rate our show and leave us a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. I'd like to introduce you to a team that every founder should know about. It's GS Futures. GS Futures is a new multi-stage VC fund that launched just this year, investing into teams at early seed, all the way through Series D. This team spun off from the GS Group in Korea, a legendary enterprise representing assets in retail, consumer, energy, and much more. GS Futures is actively seeking and investing into great hustlers. Go to their website right now, gsfutures.vc, and tell them what you're up to. I think you'll be excited to partner with them. Frank Rimmerman is a public accounting firm whose history is closely intertwined with that of Silicon Valley. With humble beginnings similar to so many startups, Frank Rimmerman was formed with a desire to serve the entrepreneurial and venture communities of the Valley, supporting those who think outside the box. This is what the Frank Rimmerman team told us at first pitches. Even we agree accounting work can be boring. That's why we chose to work with some of the most innovative and creative people, people who are changing the world around us every day. Their excitement fuels our passion and determination to grow and serve this special community. Frank Rimmerman is the entrepreneurial CPA firm. Check them out at frankrimmerman.com slash startup services.